This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to this very special edition of the Investors Roundtable. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. And today's topic, as you can see with not just my background, and I apologize for having to do mirror, but I'm doing a mirror situation, so I'm a little backwards today. But check this out, 100 baggers, future 100 plus baggers, and how to identify them. That's today's topic. And we have an incredible panel to discuss this today. Let me go. Let me go counterclockwise here. You know, probably the man to talk about this topic. The the guy he wrote the book, one of the books, but probably the book that if you're watching this, I'm guessing you have on your shelf right now. Uh, it's right here. It's in the back of me. Hundred bagger stocks that return, hundred to one, and how to find them. Christopher Mayer. Chris, thank you for joining us today. How you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. Love the banner. <laughs> oh, thank you. Me too. It's not, it actually, I, I matched the shirt and everything, you know, it we, came out right. You didn't do it reverse. So it was like zero, zero one. That would have been, <laughs> I mean, I could always just go back to like the reverse mirror effect just, yeah, yeah. To, just to really mess with people. But you know, we digress. Uh, also joining us today, Stephen Keel from Arquitos Capital. Stephen, what's going on, dude? Good to see everyone. I, I think for every time that there's an image and likeness that you use of Chris's book, there's a nickel or something that he gets to <laughs> That's <laughs> That'd be a great business model. Absolutely. Uh, doing okay. well. Great to join everyone. And, uh, and, and good to see you, Chris and Andy, for the first time here. And Gary, too. Cool. Thanks, Stephen. Gary? Gary Reby, the co-host of the breakout new podcast on SNN Network in the market trenches. Gary, what's up, man? How you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's good to be here. I, uh, I've, I have Chris's book on my bookshelf, and uh, I have uh, one, of the, one of the original ones also on my bookshelf. I think Chris's book is on my e-bookshelf. So uh, the other one, I don't think there's the, there are digital copies of. So. You know, I think I could speak for Chris to say that everybody appreciates you looking out for the environment. So uh, e-book hard hardcover, you know, either way, right? Right, Chris, we're okay with that. Fine. Yeah, <laughs> all right. So, and then finally joining us today is Andy Prykshat from Edgebrook Partners. Andy, always a pleasure, man, how you doing? Great, it's awesome to be here. And it's great to meet Chris as well, because I have his book that I read a couple is. times. Very nice. <laughs> There it is. All right. You know what? I'm glad you showed it just to make sure that I had the right background. You know, that, that, yeah. was, that would have been really, really awkward. Really I awkward. A, I do have some interesting versions you haven't seen. Let's see. Like, uh, <laughs> I, have, I have the one in Mandarin. It's kind of cool. Oh, look at that. And one in Korean. It's kind of cool. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's so cool. Wow. That's so cool. Yeah. Well, well, again, thank you all for joining me today. I, I figured we kick this off. So we have three new participants for the panel today. So before we get into the topic, I, I figured I'd get everyone's very quick take on how it's been for you guys thus far uh, in 2020, or really maybe even just since kind of pandemic really took hold. So, you know, Chris, let's start with you. Then we'll go to Gary and Andy, and then we'll get to today's topic. Yeah. So you mean more like uh, as far as markets go, financial uh, investing Financial wise? markets. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, unless you yeah, want to so, go personally too. <clears throat> no, I mean, well, the biggest personal difference, of course, is working home this whole time because I would be someone who should travel a lot. And I haven't been on a plane since March 3rd. 
So uh, that's been very different. But then there's kind of a silver lining to that because I find that um, talking to management teams is almost easier now. I probably talked to more management teams in the last six months than all last year for sure. Uh, you know, I've had situations where you email a CFO in the morning and I'm talking to him that afternoon because he's not really doing that much either. I mean, it's got a lot more time because he's not traveling or whatever. So there's that aspect has been good. And then uh, on the investing side, I think the biggest change for me is there actually has been quite a bit of turnover in my portfolio because coming into this thing, I had quite a bit in travel and aviation and uh, forced a rethink on a lot of those ideas, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about as we get going. Absolutely. Absolutely. So before we follow up into that, everybody, let's get everyone's take. So, cause I'm sure my brain's already moving with follow-ups to that. So let's go to Andy real quick. What's your, what's your quick take? Um, well, as you know, I've been doing micro cap investing for about 15 years. Um, but the last two years have been getting deeper into uh, private equity and I'm almost entirely software now, um, as well. Um, so, when, um, so you would think that these these software investments would be doing uh, doing you know reasonably well in the you know because of shift to digital it's been accelerated with COVID, but uh, our two private investments do have expo one has exposure to has exposure to tourism, <laughs> the other one has exposure to live events. So they both got slowed down. They're they're still growing, but kind of in a very small level versus the beginning of the year. So um, uh, it's been somewhat challenging year for me. <laughs> Um, but I'm, I'm maintaining this focus on, you know, software and consumer products. And I'm sure as we talk about some of these, uh, hundred or a thousand beggars, a lot of them kind of fall in the, in the recent ones fall into either software or consumer products. That's for sure. That's for sure. All right, Gary, real quick. What's your, what's your quick take? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, this has been a period of, I would say, just uh, profound change. Uh, I mean, in the markets for sure, but uh, oh, working from home, you know, we've been set up to work from home since we started our firm. And uh, a lot of the time we did that. Uh, and so that hasn't really changed. I guess what's changed is the, is the, is the occupancy of my home day to day. So uh, <laughs> watching the, uh, you know, my wife and my son, uh, my six-year-old, go all day every day is it's it's something. Uh, you know, she she deserves some sort of award for for being able to put up with a six-year-old version of myself the way that she does every day and not not taking more drastic measures. <laughs> so. Oh man, that's that's too good. I like that. That's funny. I mean, yeah. I, I, I think I echo the same sentiments. Not of the six-year-old, but a seven-and-a-half-month-year-old. That's for sure. It's a uh, it's a lot of work that to say the least. And Steven, look, I know you've been on here. Like I said, you're pretty much a co-host at this point. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, let's give, give your quick take too. Why not? Yeah, give me some. So, yeah. I mean, I, it always makes me laugh here because, you know, the first thing we have to go to Andy and uh, like a hundred bagger isn't enough. He has to bring up a thousand bagger when we'd be happy with a 10 bagger. We'd be happy with a five bagger. <laughs> and <laughs> this is, this is the whole thing with a hedonistic treadmill. Right. Mm -hmm. You go five bagger. Nah, not good enough. 10 bagger, 100 bagger, 1000 bagger. I mean, come on. Let's, Look, we uh, like round do... numbers. Okay. You know, yeah, you maybe don't... we should start with 10,000 baggers. Look, <laughs> look, Chris <laughs> wouldn't have just... sold. Look, hold on. Chris, Chris wouldn't have sold as many books if it was a, you know, just 27 bagger. Who wants a 27, 27 bagger when you can get a 30 bagger? <laughs>
The sequel, come on, the, the sequel will be Thousand Baggers. That's gonna be that's gonna be the Andy's gonna write the forward for the next yeah. one. For, <laughs> yeah. Like you thought a hundred baggers were good. Let me tell you about these thousand baggers. But yeah, uh, you know what? At that point, Andy will be so rich, like, he'll have someone else lift the pen up <laughs> for him to write it. <laughs> well, this is this is a bittersweet topic because I've never had a hundred baggers. So, <laughs> so actually we'll start with that. I was gonna say that was a good place to start. So who has had a yeah. hundred bagger on here? You don't have to name the name, but who's had a hundred bagger on here? Just just blurt out. Yeah. I'm well, not, unfortunately, uh, my hunter bagger was a hedge, <laughs> <laughs> but it was a hunter bagger. Yeah, <laughs> certainly not in the stock market now. No, it was. Uh, I've it had was a ten bagger this year, and unfortunately, I didn't. I, I trimmed it along the way, and so we certainly received a benefit, but not not the benefit that we could have if you just look one price point to another price point. And, and actually, that's something I'd like to explore later on here. I don't want to jump ahead, but you know, how do you? get the commitment to own these things throughout that entire time period and you know what's the strategy with trimming it along the way or to just setting it aside and forgetting it and following it but uh but not having or having the discipline not to sell that's a tough one i mean here let's let, let's dig right in you know so chris you're i mean everyone's a special guest today don't get me wrong but being <laughs> that chris wrote the book you know, mm -hmm. we're, we're going to jump to him first, you know, and the yep. topic that was pitched to us today was future hundred plus baggers and how to identify them. You know, just a tiny thought piece, right? You know, yeah. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure we could spend five minutes on it, but uh, <laughs> Chris, let's go to you first, man. So future hundred plus baggers, you know, what does this mean to you? What should we be looking for? Let's jump it right off. Well, I could, I could frame it uh the way i did in the book so i sort of uh the idea the underlying premise was to try to find something that sort of everyday people could do so uh you know that's why i started with those anecdotes of people who have had hundred baggers because you know they inherited some stock from their grandmother or whatever and they discover that it's up this mount you know that they just left it alone for 20 or 30 years and so part, the, part of that effort too is to strain out some of the things that would be totally unpredictable. So I took out, you know, the little penny stock miners and little penny stock drug companies that went from, you know, 13 cents to whatever, because they, they hit something just under the premise that, you know, an everyday person would probably not be able to predict that, that that's going to happen. What I was really looking for was like an early McDonald's where you had 300 boxes of great economics where you could, you know, imagine someday where there would be 3000 or more 30,000 or some other kind of business that has reasonably good economics and leaves a trail so that you could, you could discover that. And one of the things that's most interesting when I did that is that, you know, these businesses, there were, there were quite a few and they weren't necessarily that tiny. So a lot of these businesses, the average sales are, you know, generating 200 million plus in sales. Uh, and for a lot of these hundred baggers, you had multiple times to buy them. You know, you, some of them you could bought at any time in a decade. And if you had held them, you would have made a hundred times your money. So those were the things I sort of focused on. And then what, what you look for, uh, I'd say there's a couple other striking things. One is that the study was surprisingly industry agnostic. So most of the time people would want to, would think that tech companies would dominate the list. And when you look at it, it really wasn't the case. You know, you had quite a few banks, natural resource companies, consume all kinds of consumer companies and humble companies doing humble, boring things. So, uh, the keys, the way I kind of distill it down is that 
you got to look for that return on capital, lots of ways to measure, but some way where you're looking at return on the capital in the business and their ability to reinvest and earn that again and again over time. And if, if you can identify those businesses, then it really becomes a math problem. You know, if you get 20% a year, 25 years, you're at 100x. So I, I'll, I'll start with that. All right. Rest of the panel, you guys want to jump in? You know, it's interesting. I, I, I think I, I don't, I've never had a hundred bagger, so I, I can't really speak from experience, but I, I sort of wonder if they're harder to find today, just given the nature of how companies come to market. Uh, you know, a lot of companies, it used to be that you'd access the public markets pretty early in the company's life. And now it's happening much later in the company's life. So Uber comes to market as a 40 or $50 billion company, you know, Earlier in its life cycle, it might have, you know, another period of time, it might have come public at, you know, a fraction of that. And so, you know, I sort of wonder if there's something that's that's changed a little bit from. I'm, I'm sure that there will still be others. It's just, I wonder if it's gotten even harder to find because now the the VCs have pocketed, you know, the first uh, the first 50 of the hundred, you know, or or first 25 of the hundred, or whatever it might be, uh, for for some of these companies. And so. Um, you know, maybe that's a, that's a that's a discussion point because these a lot of companies are coming public just significantly larger than they used to be, and so um, I'm wondering if it's going to get more difficult to find find some of these, and that may be some of the reasons some of these small and micro companies, particularly small companies, micro companies, I guess, uh, you know, there's all kinds of reasons companies are really tiny, but um, maybe it's 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 getting harder to move from being a small company to a larger company because. It, it happened, but there, public outside public investors just had don't have a chance to participate in that. Uh, to I, some I extent, like... there's a lot more securities too. I mean, uh, you know, when you think about international markets, it's much easier to access now than they were. So some some offset to that might be that your menu is a little wider. But I think that's a good point. I I, I feel that in the venture and um, pre IPO companies, not across the board, but in general, these are say newer industries, uh, newer types of business models that there's so much, the pace of change has been so quick the last, you know, really internet age, uh, 20, 20 years or so. And to Chris's point uh, in his book that some of these are just very boring businesses, traditional businesses. And you know, I wonder if there'll be some sort of bifurcation there where maybe these boring businesses that don't catch the eye of early stage investors, pre-IPO investors, those boring companies might still come public and still have that growth potential. And, you know, it doesn't even have to be the most boring thing. It could be like a Chipotle, right? Mm -hmm. like, you think of a company like that, that's probably not going to get venture money early on. I mean, it might, but it's not a, it's, you know, it's not a new business model. And, you know, it's all about access to capital. So if a smaller company is unable to kind of get access in the private markets and they become public because of that, uh, and there's some sort of misunderstanding perhaps, or, or it's just out of favor where the, the private market investors are, are not as interested, it's not as sexy, so to speak. And that's how perhaps in the future, there could be these hundred bagger potentials. Uh, maybe it pays to look at more of these boring businesses, quite frankly, in the public markets, at least not the private markets, but in the public markets because they were overlooked just because it's not as sexy uh, for the private markets. Andy, you wanna jump in? 
Well, I think just to put it broadly, I mean, to, to find the 100 bagger, you need three things, which is first, you need a super great business, whether it's, I guess, whether it's boring or not. And uh, second, you need a super great price. And that's either distress or being hated even um, with, with big growth and, and in multiple and EPS in the future. And then third, you need a super strong stomach. So um, of the three, you can debate which is the, hard, is the hardest to have, but the, I think really the hardest is the super, identifying a super great business and one that will remain a super great business. And what, what I'm challenged with is all these stories, the hundred beggars from the past really doesn't mean apply to the future because the whole definition of moat has probably changed post say 2005 because um, before before 2005 it was really a supply side moats really was what drove these meaning you had um, you know you built a distribution network mass marketing you know economies of scale and production manufacturing a lot of the the, the coca-colas and the you know the textbook kind of cases that Buffett invested in but post 2005 you have you know now with the internet you have all the cloud services you know AWS Shopify all mobile engagement where you can basically develop a one-on-one -on -one relationship with the customer you couldn't some mass marketing is not really needed anymore and then you have network intelligence meaning you can capture data about your customers and even use AI to cook to cultivate how you how you sell to them so it's what so the, the supply side moat is kind of gone away and now there's kind of a demand side moat is now in the future is now today so that's why it's hard to, to identify these, these super great businesses chris can i ask you a question about these businesses um sure. how many it's been a while since i've i've read your book or the or the book that preceded it by i don't know 40 or 50 years however long it was um, how many times did, did these businesses actually have to raise outside money? I don't know. Um, that's a good question. Uh, in, just intuitively, just because of familiarity with some of the names at the top, I would say almost never. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, Microsoft and Home Depot and, you know, those kinds of names never came back to the market and raised capital. One idea I would push back a little bit on from Andy would be that you need a great price um, because great price, you know, you mentioned distress and I certainly agree. <laughs> you know, if you get something super cheap like that, that helps. Um, but sometimes great prices are revealed only retrospectively. I mean, you could have paid 40 times earnings for Starbucks and, uh, you know, easily made a hundred times your money. Think about all the times, you know, if you had bought Amazon when it looked crazy expensive in the last 20 years, you would have done very well or, I mean, we, we all could pull lots and lots of examples. So um, you do need a great price, but it's not a great price necessarily that you're going to see a lo low price earnings ratio today, for example. Um, the, re the real it's, difficult it's, it's thing. It's low price based on the few, yeah. obviously future earnings. So right. obviously you make right. money two ways with the multiple expansion and the earnings growth. But That's right. Uh, I mean, I think the main point that Andy actually hit on, and, and I think maybe that that's, you know, what, what maybe we can discuss a little further is this redefinition of, of moat, you know, yeah. back, 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 you know, not even 10, five, 10 years ago, that definition was completely different, even potent, you know, when the book came out, you know, and looking at some of these traditional businesses, had you held, you know, for five, 15, 10, 15 years, you, 
I mean, even then it still was very difficult to tell whether or not they were going to get to where they did, you know? So, I mean, what, how should we then think about moat and, and, and various moats these days um, when considering looking at a company and, and going in with that mindset, like I'm only looking for 100 baggers. I know that's we're putting ourselves in a little shell there, but let's say we're only looking for 100 baggers. How should we be thinking about moats? Um, open it up to anybody. I have no answer. Well, I mean, I, I'll start with start just because this is something I've actually thought thought about, and I've written about it on the blog before. I had this uh, blog post called "Invisible Moats," which was uh, the idea behind that was that a business can have a moat around culture. So it's not necessarily that they're doing something that no one else can do. It's that they're it's that the way they do it is what's hard to replicate. That they have for whatever reason they have incentives aligned, and they have uh, an internal culture that is supportive of you know keeping keeping reinvestment opportunities and keeping it together in a way that competitors aren't I, I use old dominion freight as an example because that's just a less than truckload ltl trucker there's lots of those companies out there and yet this is one that continuously is taking market share year after year after year return on invested capital climbs year after year after year and the only way you can explain it is that they have this they have this culture employees own stock and the incentives are aligned um so you you can I think the way to think about moats is, you know, people get stuck on the traditional four or five, whatever they are. And I think what you really want is you just want to figure out a business that continue to do what they're doing. And sometimes it's hard to put their, put your finger on it. So you might see the fingerprints, you might see it in rising market share, rising return on invested capital, but not something you can just point to one factor and say, well, it's because they have this patent or because they have this, you know, specific moat. It might be a combination of softer things that are harder to define. Yeah, and I, I think qualitatively, that's a big difference from my perspective, looking at past moats that were maybe a little bit more measurable uh, quantitatively. And today, the qualitative factors are so important because the pace of change is so fast. So to Chris's point, the culture, how do you, you know, quantify that to the capital, capital allocation skills of those decision makers at the top? How do you quantify that? And I mean, you can do it in retrospect, but at the time or in advance, which is what we're looking for here, you have to look at those qualitative factors. And I think to Chris's point, the incentives, not just at the top, but all the way, uh, top management decision makers, all the way down to, you know, if it's someone on the factory floor, right? Do they feel that ownership mentality because they have some sort of stake in the company, whether it's economic or something else, where they treat it as if it's their own. They have that ownership mentality. I think that's a very important aspect of it. And then, you know, again, all the way up to that top decision maker and his, and his or her team and the board members and their ability to effectively reinvest capital. And there's obviously reinvestment opportunities within the company, but to do it in a way that is as efficient as possible and can be repeated over and over and over again, you're not going to see that show up until years later. And then in retrospect, you'll kick yourself and say, well, of course, look at that. It was, should have been easy, but it, it's never easy. Right. Yeah, I mean, think, about, think about a McDonald's, you know, we can look at it in retrospect. It's easy to, to say, oh yeah, you could have bought it when it had 400, you know, hamburgers, restaurants. You said, geez, you know, it's obvious, but it wasn't obvious because you have to go back to that point in time when there are lots of companies that were like that. You know, why was it McDonald's? It wasn't that they were making hamburgers and French fries. There's nothing that somebody else couldn't replicate, but they had that, you know, they had that culture, they had a process down 
and uh, yeah. Yeah, to Stephen's point, that's what you know really makes it go. One interesting thing about the brand too, if that's if that's a moat or not. But um, when I when I look at the extreme examples, like the the thousand baggers, it's like these are not just category leaders, but they actually like category killers. Meaning, when you think of the category, you think of the company. It's like mm -hmm. almost synonymous with the category, like Amazon and and retailer. Um, and so, um, you know, I'm kind of wondering if, if can you equate um, market share or brand as a category leader with with moat i think brand and, uh, is interesting to think to talk yeah. about because i think a lot of investors probably overplay brand and they think brand in their mind means you know is it familiar people do people know it and that's really not a brand that as investors we're interested in we're interested in a brand that has pricing power you know we're interested in a brand that people will pay extra for you know apple's a brand because think about the premium they're getting on their iphones for so long you know that that's i think the, the real importance of a brand is where does it where does it pay off financially not just that people are familiar with it yeah oh it's almost in the market, it, 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 there, there's this saying that the narrative follows the price and you know the the narrative around a brand also follows its notoriety and and so that like there's sort of a you know they're they're linked to one another and so like apple as a brand 25 years ago when when the company was in the toilet didn't yeah. quite mean as much. That's right. Right. And uh, I remember a decade ago or 15 years ago, you know, Eastman Kodak was a brand. It was the fourth most valuable brand in the world. And today it doesn't mean anything. And so I just like, I'm really suspicious. And, and like when I hear investment pitches that start with iconic brand, I immediately like I'm something breaks in my head and I, and I have a hard time trying to actually process the rest of the rest of the pitch. You know, what's interesting about a lot of the companies that, that you, that you guys are mentioning is that they're, you know, there's owner operator, you know, to it. Right. And I, I, Chris, I don't know if you go went back and looked at all the companies in, in, in that you that you'd looked at, but I would bet that the vast, vast, vast majority of them were owner operators and not quote unquote professional management. Yeah. And so. And, and I made that part of the part of that criteria too. And and I was, I, I'm a little hesitant on that one only because there are lots of exceptions of great companies that you know, for years and years didn't have anything. You know, they had professional management, but at least in the beginning. And, uh, you know, you think about all the companies, they're almost synonymous with an entrepreneur. If you think of Schwab, well, it's, you know, it's Charles Schwab, Walmart, well, Sam Walton. I mean, you could go matching up names with companies for quite a few of them that are on the list. But then there, you know, there are always exceptions. Like you look at a Gillette, it's been, been a great business for a long time, but there hasn't been a family or an owner operator there for a long time. That one was driven just by a great model and a decision to kind of stick to a certain uh, a certain model that just paid off over time again and again. And I mean, probably the same is true of like, uh, I don't know, something like a Coca-Cola or, you know, but again, in the beginning, definitely. And even now you see things like monster beverage, there's entrepreneurs, there's owner operators behind it. So I think that's a good mark if you can find an, you know, an owner operator. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. You mentioned old dominion and I actually had read through their financials this weekend because I'm looking at another less than truckload company that's, uh, sort of got somebody in control of it. And I was struck that they, I, I was actually like, I looked at their financials and I was just shocked at how clean they were and how interesting, like, and, and I go and I look and there's these, isn't there like a family that controls that if I, yes. if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. So again, you know, you have a, you have a, a company in the field that's doing something different. And you asked like, like in my mind, like what's different about these companies? It, it sort of reminds me, you know, I read this, um, I read a lot of, um, I'm a, I'm a baseball fan and I read a lot of Bill James and 
he wrote this passage on uh, Pedro Martinez. And he said, what made Pedro, Pedro? You know, he threw really hard, but there were, there were people who threw harder. He had a great slider, but there were people who were better. And, you know, he had an awesome changeup. And there, but other, you know, and it, was, it wasn't any one thing. He said his explanation of Pedro was it was essentially a factorial. You know, it was one times two times three times four times five. And the difference between that and one times two times three times four gets you to a different, completely different place mathematically. And it's sort of like a, it, that's, that's sort of like what some of these companies, uh, it's, it's very similar with some of these companies. It's not any one thing, but it's a combination of these different things that when you put them together, make something just really different. That's a great point. I remember I used to, I used to love Bill James too. Uh, I remember reading Bill James abstracts when I was a uh, teenager in baseball. And I used to love what he, when he did exactly what you would say, like he would take a player that was glitzy, you know, had let's say 40 home runs and everybody would instinct, instinctively think was the better player. And he would take some player much less famous, but that did like four or five things really well. So that when you summed it up, that, that player was, you know, creating more value terms of runs and bases and things and the glitzy player and it carries over to companies in the same way companies that do a lot of things well you know and all those factors in combination can make something that's pretty magical yeah so, yeah no gary go go what were we gonna say no no, no. It's, it's 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 an interesting analysis and you know it's funny how moneyball was a was a business book more than it was a baseball book yeah. and so uh totally I just totally I, happen, I happened to just rewatch it the other day. It's just it's one of the best. I freaking love that movie. And the book, of course. I was gonna say, did you read the book? <laughs> I read the book. For, yes, I read I promise I read the book. You're one of these guys who just watched the movie. <laughs> now Bobby's he's a he's a big Brad Pitt fan. He just had to get another Brad Pitt. So. You know, look, look, the book was great. I had to, but you know, look, you know, just just like uh, you know, with our interview, I in full disclosure, I, I did the interview with you first before I read the book. Hey, I, I'm I'm not afraid to admit that. You know, I'm I'm, a, I'm one of those guys. Uh but <laughs> but you know I, I think that also brings us to today, you know, and, and really talking about some of these factors that, you know, you put them all together and then hopefully one day, you know, we'll look back in retrospect, maybe 10, 15 years down the road. But I mean, if we were looking at today, what are some of the factors that you kind of put together that maybe can set up a company that right now could be a future hundred bagger? I mean, has it changed at all? Anybody? Well, I say one thing, you know, that's come home to me more is, uh, you know, the importance of that, of that balance sheet, because we go through this period, like with the pandemic, you know, it's all fine to say you want to think long term, but you know, you kind of got to get there. <laughs> and if between now and then you can't survive it, or you got to raise capital, that's a big, big, big hit. Um, so I, I, you know, it was one of the it's one of the filters I have, of course, is, you know, you want to have balance sheet strength. Uh, and I, you know, to your point about now, I think that's important because you're still in a very kind of a uncertain environment about what will happen as far as future lockdowns and whatever. So, uh, you know, you definitely want to have something that has the financial staying power, not just a lot of these other financial characteristics, which I'm sure people will mention. I would say yeah, there's yeah. also an opportunity for, for some of these companies that may not have had any kind of culture mode. I mean, now is a perfect time really than ever for these companies to say, hey, look, let's really evaluate what our, our culture capital is, you know, and maybe, you know, not just obviously from a, you know, a 
feel good standpoint, of course, but, you know, from a future growth standpoint, you know, now's a good time to really invest in that. I mean, I'm, I, I'm, we've been seeing that across the board in so many companies. I'd also reiterate Stephen's point, which I liked before when he was talking about the so-called boring companies. I mean, right now, you would say, you know, the most expensive company, SaaS, anything, you know, there's certain sexy points that people just love. And there's still really, really good businesses doing humble things that you probably could find something in reasonable value still. Yeah, you know what I, I love? I think there's some great opportunities overseas in some countries, especially Asia, where you've got some great demographics and in Indonesia or the Philippines or something along those lines that are, these are boring businesses that have been copied. They're copying kind of traditional US and European businesses. There's one, uh, and they're family owned, right? So they've come to the market, but they're still owned 50, 60, 70% in some cases by the family certainly controlled. But last year I had a, a trip to Asia and visited a number of these companies. There was a knockoff from Home Depot, right? In the Philippines and Manila, it was great. Uh, they had eight, eight units. They were looking to expand overseas. I'm not going to give the name right now, but they were looking to expand beyond. They very easily could expand to Indonesia. They very easily could expand to some other areas, uh, Vietnam, Thailand, et cetera, where the demographics are tremendous for that a type of, of company. So it's a boring company, but, and it's a traditional company. It's something that's been around for a while here in the US, but there it's new because there was not that history of home improvement uh, on your own. Like you would, you would have to do it, but you weren't going to the local store. It was a very fragmented market, right? And they're doing very well. They're family oriented. They've got great reinvestment opportunities. I, I think a company like that, from my perspective, who I'm, I'm not as attracted to kind of some of these more sexy tech type companies that where there's, you know, I don't want to say high risk, high reward, but it's just an, an area where there's a, a pace of change is faster, where, you know, look, the Home Depot knockoff in the Philippines that has the potential to have 100 units, and right now they have eight. That's a business model you can understand. You can look back at previous examples of it, like Home Depot and others, and how it was rolled out. And, you know, they're looking at that in the same way and they're, they're, you know, doing what uh, worked for Home Depot and trying to avoid what didn't work just in a different area and a different culture. My friend is basically investing in Asia for uh, almost 20 years and his go-to country is Indonesia. So um, it's basically he invests in the beverage companies there that benefit from the middle rising middle class. So I guess as you go from poverty to middle class, one of the first things you do is you open a bank account and you buy a beverage, you know, a Coke or beer. So you invest in the financial companies and the beverage companies. And he has basically a 15% annualized net return for, for 20 years. Uh, so uh, um, I think if you, could, if you could find those consumer product companies with a rising middle class, you know, you, you can do well on those. Yeah, um, layer it on. So you have a yeah. rising middle class, which is great. You have a yeah. younger average age, right, which right. is also great. You have increased access to capital and debt, okay, which is also great. And then you have tastes because of international nature now. They're, they understand, you know, okay, here's, here's some sort of, uh, you know, whether it's a beverage, whether it's a, you know, home improvement, whatever. They, have, they now have access there to business models that have worked in other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. And I think you combine those four things and, you know, there's cultural differences. There's always corporate governance. There's always political issues to deal with. And that's the risk for sure. But, you know, look, 
you have a small piece of the portfolio, you get a hunter bagger out of it. <laughs> I mean, right. you're, you're doing great. And I think it's worthwhile to take on a little bit of that uh, exogenous risk from the company it, it itself to, uh, to have the opportunity for, for, for some of those long-term gains. And, um, and look, that, that's the area I'm looking at a little bit. I haven't done that historically, but the, the demographic area, the age and all those factors that I just mentioned, uh, are, are really attractive. And that's what really the U.S. was 50 years ago, right? I think one of the other interesting things when you talk about overseas companies like that, just to uh, think about some of the ones that didn't work. Um, like I think about McDonald's, you remember Arcos Dorados, which went IPO. Was, there was a lot of excitement around it because this was a company that had the, Arcos Dorados means golden arches in Spanish. So it had all the uh, McDonald's franchises for South America. And of course, you know, that seems like an exciting story, but then a McDonald's in South America doesn't work quite the same way as it does, it does here. It's not the same price point. And, you know, South America, you got, it's not just one big market, it's lots of different countries, lots of different currencies. And so it really uh, struggled under that. I remember it went public somewhere in the twenties and got as low as two bucks. Uh, I'm not sure where it is today, but Sometimes those don't translate as well. I think I almost prefer kind of what Stephen was saying, where you have a company that's actually grown up in that market because it's more likely to have hammered out some of the differences in those models rather than say, you know, Home Depot or whatever, trying to do that somewhere else might not work as well. I mean, I'll say on a personal note, the best McDonald's I've ever had was in Paris, you know, but <laughs> But that's beside a Royale that's with cheese. Is that what you're a Royale tell us? with cheese. That is correct. <laughs> <laughs> you know, look in 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 Europe though, the McDonald's are better. They have the McCafe thing. They have they don't uh, have really have cashiers. You can come up. Everything's electronic. They actually are not at the same kind of you know level that here in the U.S. And right. uh, it's it's popular and attractive. Now I don't know the the growth potential there is you know kind of not as high. The price points are are different. Uh, but it's, it is interesting that you see same brands, different uh, geographies, and it typically doesn't work. I think to Chris's point, I, from my experience, look, following some of these companies, it doesn't work. It's the local company that actually is just better at it. Yeah. And I think part of that is the local companies that, you know, if it's family owned, they've already been around for a long time, they've worked out the kinks, but they also have made commitments to be there permanently. And when you have say, if Home Depot were to hop into the Philippines, it's not a big deal for them, right? So they're gonna open eight, 10, 15, 20 units. The suppliers know they're not gonna be committed long-term. Uh, there's a change in maybe executive leadership at some point that says, why are we wasting our time? Why are we talking about the Philippines in a senior officer meeting, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and I think the locals know that and uh, the local suppliers know that. And, you know, there, there's, there's always a little bit of tribalness too, you know, internationally where it's, they'd rather see local companies, uh, uh, yeah. you know, be the ones that succeed. I mean, one possible kind of interesting, maybe exception to that would be sometimes where you have a franchise or like a Domino's pizza in Australia actually has been a, been a great stop and very good business. And in that case, of course, you still have the locals, owning a store, putting up their own capital, and it's a different situation. But that might be, you know, one area where an outside brand could do well if there's some sort of franchise. Well, there's a 7-Eleven. Yeah, excellent point, because exactly to that, there's a 7-Eleven is huge there, mm -hmm. okay, in that area. And it's the franchise model. It's, it's locally owned, but, you know, using the brand name. And, and, you know, maybe that's something to look at, too, where these U.S. brands that we might be familiar with, uh, you know, using that type of model and succeeding in other parts of the world. 
So I want, I wanted to actually shift gears to the topic that Stephen, that you brought up. And this is this idea of uh, having the stomach to, to hold some of these companies for sometimes as long as is necessary to recognize it being a hundred bagger. You know, I mean, it's an interesting topic to talk about because especially right now, I mean, with the kind of craze, I would argue, uh, that's happened since we've had this, I, I don't even know how to describe it. I guess it's a V-shaped recovery since our the bottom in March, you know? And so, I, I mean, it, it, you have a whole new subset of investors that are coming in that, you know, most of them are being exposed to the stock market via this trading mentality and not this un understanding of these, uh, of looking at the fundamentals and holding some of these businesses, you know, that may seem boring right now, but, you know, a couple of years down the road, you know, are really wealth generators for them. So, I mean, how can we speak to that audience right now about the benefits of, you know, having the stomach to, to hold some of these companies for the long term, if you recognize it as a potential hunter bagger. So open the floor. Well, I think it's a little different for whether you're a professional investor or you're just doing in your personal account. In some ways, I think that person in their personal account has an advantage and they can more easily put stocks in it and, and leave it alone and forget about it. Uh, but when you're a professional and you're being judged by your quarterly performance, or, you know, it's, it's much, it becomes much more difficult to hold on to something after it's been you know, cut in half or worse or a stock that doesn't go anywhere for a long time. One of the examples I always like to pull is from the hundred baggers study is that, you know, Berkshire was the best performer and that stock, you know, was cut in half three different times and it had a seven year stretch where it went nowhere. And so, you know, you think about it, I mean, how hard is it to hold on a stock for seven years? It goes nowhere. And yet that was the best performing stock in the whole study. You know, you go through other examples down the list, it's worse. You know, their periods of out underperformance were longer. Um, so that's, a, that's the, that's the challenge. The other challenge, of course, as we all know, is that what we do, you know, we don't get linear feedback. <laughs> it, all the gains come at the end. You know, it's, you get these steps and then, then all of a sudden they really don't, they don't build until you're, you're already 10 years in. Um, so uh, there's no easy answers to this question other than to continue to say that you have to focus on the business and certain metrics that you follow. Uh, and you know, you have to give it a little room. Like you have to let a business disappoint you a little bit and not blow it out right away. And likewise, you have to let it be willing to let a stock get a little ahead of the business sometimes and not, and not cut. So, I mean, there's no easy answers to that, but some thoughts. I was looking at some of these peak to trough uh, drawdowns or some of these stocks. And so the XBEL, for example, went down 84%. Uh, Amazon went down 94%. Uh, from in, in that um, tech bust, Microsoft went down 75%. So that I guess that's why the, the strong stomach, can you handle an 80% drawdown on your stock and not sell? And I was trying to think of an analogy for this, but I was thinking a bit like basically be a barnacle on a whale, meaning like you, you find this whale that you, you know, this beautiful whale that you like of a company and we're passive investors, so we're not in the company, but you want to be be the barnacle that sticks to that and stays on that whale, um, but I know it's very hard to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, most of the no, uh, as we talk, sort of as anecdotal cases. Oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Chris. Well, I just said very quickly. A lot of the anecdotal cake story, you know, histories of people have had hundred baggers is usually because of some kind of neglect, like they, they either didn't see the price for a long period of time. Uh, 
So I, I just thought I'd throw that because the drawdown thing is, I mean, that's definitely true. And all, almost all these stocks uh, went through just repeated drawdowns. So I'm, I'm sort of, as we talk about this, I'm reminded of a study that Fidelity did of their retail brokerage accounts. And the best, what they found was that the best investors were either dead or forgot they had an account. And so um, I think there's a certain element of that. Uh, and then also, you know, just, it's probably easier to do in a personal account than it is in, uh, you know, as a managing money professionally, because as a professional manager, you've got position size limits and, and all sorts of things like that. Like, you know, if you were smart enough to go buy one of these, that uh, you know, and, and it's appreciated a lot, I mean, you got to sort of, you have a professional obligation to, to do something about it. And so uh, I, and that, and that also, by the way, is why, you know, a lot of these things don't move in a straight line because as they happen and unfold, you've got a, you've got a huge wave of professional investor behavior. That's it's, it's not a straight shot up. It's, you know, they, they've got to do things because they've got position size limits or, or they think the stock's gotten ahead of itself. And so like, you know, you sort of just have to um, make sure that, you know, you can behave a little bit differently than that. And, and there's also this element of, uh, I think, and I think Seth Carmen called it the relative performance derby, where everybody's, you know, concerned about how they look relative to everybody else all the time. And you have to be willing to look a little bit different than that and have capacity to suffer. And that's a lot harder to do professionally than it is maybe personally. And so, um, you know, you know, I don't go into these things looking for for these things for anything to go 100 to one or whatever. I'm I'm looking for something that I think I can own for a while that has you know, a good, good investment re return potential, um, you know, it, whether or not it, it hits, you know, some, some bagger status or not, I don't, I don't really know, but, um, you know, as it, it's, it's, but it's, but I could, I, I could tell that it's, I could tell you for sure that it's much easier to do to manage personally than it is professionally because of the constraints that are imposed on the professional. Yeah, I think that's a absolutely true. And, as a look, if you had that Berkshire position and you had it for seven years and it was flat, you don't have a fund anymore. You just don't, if that's a big piece of it, or if it's, you know, look, that's a diversified portfolio and it even was back then. And so if you consider that a, a fund in and of itself, you just don't have a fund. And even, you know, it goes up and down and up and down during that time period. So of course your investors, uh, new investors would have added money when it was up, then it would have gone down. They, they would have pulled out and here you are seven years later and you're an idiot. You know, and that's the perspective on it. Uh, but in year 10, right, you look at your 10 or 15 or 20, you're the greatest investor ever. Mm -hmm. And that long-term perspective is the greatest advantage you can have. And as an individual investor, if you own those, you can sit there and just not think about it. You know, put it in the thing, say, this is a 20-year stock, uh, this is a 10-year stock or company. Uh, and if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it, it doesn't work. But, you know, you don't, you, you, ought to, you gotta be careful uh, like to Chris's point, you know, quarterly earnings come out. Okay. They weren't what you expected. Maybe they were a little disappointing. You can't just turn around and sell it. Sometimes you got to give it a year or two. And I think that's Buffett's greatest advantage is he's, he's slow to sell. Uh, now he's a little bit faster most recently, <laughs> you know, but, yeah. but in, in, in earlier days uh, he, he would give that leash. And I think he could give the leash because when he grew up, he had to call out for the, annual reports, quarterly reports. There weren't even quarterly reports oftentimes. The annual reports would get mailed to him. He would have to go to the library and look these things up and they were always late. Uh, they didn't show up, you know, 
401 and we're reading it tonight so we can figure out what to do tomorrow. And, and I think it really does benefit you to not be as on top of the most recent news in those situations and be more patient. And as an individual investor, you can do that because, you know, you can have that internal confidence in and of yourself uh, in that, in that decision making, you can stomach the, you know, volatility uh, and, in a fund structure, it's, it's just very difficult to do with short-term uh, reporting and mark-to-market type of things. I think being able to hold it and see through it, um, what's really important with that, and I've, I've got a number of different stocks that in my portfolio that, you know, behave very differently than the market from on a day-to-day basis. Um, it's being able to see sort of see out a little bit further and have confidence and conviction in what you think something is or could be. Um, and that's driven by, uh, you know, what the, what, what is the real, you know, what, what could this, you have to have some vision uh, that's similar, I guess, to the management's vision, if they have one on what something could be. And if you're not anchored, uh, you, you got to anchor to that, but you also have to be very careful with that because it's, there's also a possibility that you're wrong about it. But you have to have some uh, some some idea of where you think this is really going, um, and that's actually the, I think the hardest thing of all is to see what something maybe could be. I mean, Tesla is a very popular one there, and the Tesla Q crowd on Twitter is very fierce and ferocious, and you know it's a battleground stock, you know, and that but it, like that guy's got some vision of something. I don't know, really know what it is and I don't know what he's taking to get that vision, but you know, like it, it, there's, and I don't have a, I don't have a dog in that fight, but you know, like the conviction to hold something like that for a very long period of time, um, you know, it requires a belief in, in what, in what's going on there. And I don't know that anybody that owns it really understands what the vision is, but that's, that's a different matter entirely, but there's other versions of that, that you can see, like, like, I was, I'm in, I'm involved in this very small Canadian insurance company where like, I think I've got a good idea of what the vision is. And I think I know sort of how big the market they can tap is. And I sort of have an idea of what I think the, you know, it's sort of an open-ended uh, reinvestment runway. And, you know, if you think that they can largely self-fund that, like, then you can do, you have a shot at doing pretty reasonably well. And like that gives me the conviction to sort of hold on to things quarter to quarter. And, you know, this quarter is going to be whatever. And, you know, that's fine. Has anything, has anything about the vision for this changed? And if the answer to that question is no, then I just sort of keep going with it. And that's, and that's really it. But, you know, it's, it behaves very differently. It's, you know, with trades in Canada, not the U.S. It's, it's something that's very difficult for us to do for somebody professionally. It's also very small. And it, it, all of these different things, you know, make finding these things somewhat somewhat tricky and elusive. And I don't know, I don't know what, what it's ultimately going to work out to be, if it's going to be a, a, a new story in Chris's next book or not. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a combination of these things that sort of, uh, I think makes, you know, having things that having a, something that's some kind of bagger at all possible. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I would argue it's, it's not just, understanding the vision of management teams that you're looking to invest in. But actually it hits on another topic that was sent in via Twitter where somebody asked us if, you know, how, how does the world look for every individual in 2025? It's having your own thought process of, all right, well, what do I imagine the world being like, or what can it look like? You know, not just like back to the future where we thought, you know, we were going to all be on hoverboards. Well, it's clearly going to be an apocalypse and, you know, zombies walking all over. I oh, mean, of course. We all, 
that's how we all felt in March. And then, oh, geez, it's different in, in May. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess it's having that discipline to look past the apocalypse. Okay. The apocalypse happened. All right. I, I went through it. Now where's the flying car? You know, I mean, uh, but, but it, it, it kind of has, you kind of have to think about that a little bit as well when you're conceiving of, all right, well, especially thinking about a Tesla and, and maybe that long-term vision, full disclosure, yeah. not a shareholder or have a dog in that fight as well. You, you know what I mean? Almost like you don't. I you think the easiest thing to think it. about it in the context of 2025 is what's going to be the same in 2025 rather than what's going to be different. Because yeah. uh, what's going to be different in 2025 is, is sort of, what I, I think you're, you're making some prediction about the, how, the, how the world's going to change, which may or may not transpire. It may be easier to make a prediction about what may not change. And mm -hmm. so, you know, am I still going to be pounding energy drinks in 2025? I don't know. I'm going to be five years older. Maybe, maybe my heart doctor says no, but is everybody else going to be pounding energy right. drinks in 2025? <laughs> uh, you know, Steven, for sure. He already, <laughs> yeah. for the, if we're going to continue to do this in 2025 and this morning, you know, he's going to be yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right into the vein. Yeah. Uh, you know, some of this I was going to say too, you know, we're, we have, you know, we, we have all this stuff about behavioral economics and behavioral finance, you know, we're to some extent, you know, moist robots, you push certain buttons, certain things going to happen. Uh, so, you know, one of the things I think about sometimes when it comes to advertising is like, you just can't look at it, just can't see it. If you don't see it, then you won't feel that temptation or that need. And when it comes to this, you know, what the world's going to look like, for whatever reason, it's usually the sort of bearish, scary scenarios that dominate, you know, and that's the ones that sometimes will come up with people and they'll forward this to me and say, well, what do you think of this? And it'll be some guy laying out some catastrophic vision of what's going to happen. You know, you just can't read that stuff. And if that happens, then you've got bigger problems than in your, in your portfolio. But it does, you know, work on your mind in a way it's, it's hard to control, I guess, your reaction. are most persuasive, I think. It's because it's the best story, right? Yes. You've got every plot point of historical kind of storytelling there. Where and that's the contrarian part of it. I mean, it, that's where I think where Buffett has been a genius in obviously so many different areas. But it's his optimism that allowed him to accomplish what he accomplished. He could have had all of the other skills and not had the optimism, and it would have been a completely different story. And so, you know, and again, look, if the doomsday stuff happens, we've got bigger problems, right? Than you know whether we're uh, still able to kind of invest in these areas. And you know what? quite frankly, the, the doomsday stuff has never really happened historically, even as terrible of a century as the 20th century was, there was such significant advancement that, you know, look, if it's 1899, and someone would tell you what was going to happen, yeah. right over the next 80 years, uh, you'd, <laughs> you wouldn't, like, no, you wouldn't put your money in anything. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, that's definitely true. Think about the 20th century and all the disasters and catastrophes, inflations, wars, and yet, I mean, all these hundred baggers in this book and the original one, Phelps, they all grew out of that. So, <laughs> I think that's generally true. I just would just remember that we were the ones that happened to win the wars. So, uh, you know, the people that lost the wars, their their 20th century investment returns and their stock markets were not as good. So, uh, you know, it, that said, I mean, but again, but, can go but wrong Gary, do. Gary, not to interrupt, but to that point though. The people who won the war, you know, they were the optimists before because the capitalism ultimately is, is about optimism and it's about faith and confidence and human ingenuity. And the, the countries and the systems that lost, 
I had a completely opposite view. So yes, I mean, economically, you know, it's easy after the fact, the survivorship bias, but even, even in 1899, you want to bet on human ingenuity and, and optimism for, uh, you know, for that. And, and those other types of approaches, those economic approaches were betting against it. Yeah, no, I mean, you, you sort of always want to, you always want to bet on tomorrow being a little bit better than today. And, and you sort of almost have, almost always have to remind yourself that that's been the general trend of things for the past 700 years or whatever it was since, you know, the printing, pre you know, we, we emerged from the dark ages and, the, and you get the printing press and whatever else. Um, you know, I had to read a book called, uh, or I read a book called Factfulness, which was, it's the, the moral of that story is there's never been a better time to be on planet earth uh than today even even in the midst of all the stuff that's going on out there in the world but um you know it's you know I'm there's always somebody like everything. that uh you know i remember in college growing up the the guy doing that was julian simon i don't know if any of you remember him but he was the same he was the guy who would make the case that you know the world's getting better and uh, but I, I mean i think it just there's no I don't know that there's another way to be as a long-term investor and holder of businesses and to be fundamentally optimistic about what people can do. I mean, if you don't have that, then, I mean, I have friends that are not like that and they, you know, have heavily, uh, they have books that are heavily short. They're always invested in things that they think will do well in the world's disaster, you know, stuff in mining or gold or, or does things in basic food. But I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, I think that that uh, a stance of uh, you know moderate optimism is usually the right one. Like it's historically been the you know cautious optimism, whatever you right. want to call it. Um, you know, there's there's obviously things to worry about in the world, and you know, it's uh, yeah. You always feel you know, naive when you're taking the optimistic view. I mean, do you guys have that feeling? You know, when you're, when you're the guy trying to be optimistic, and someone's telling you there's all kinds of things wrong with the world, you you're the one who feel you're the one who feels kind of naive. <laughs> it's our opportunity though, and to be comf comfortable with feeling like an idiot every once in a while, because I think if you're in this industry, that's what you have to you have to do. Because every once yeah. in a while, you are an idiot. But you know, I wonder. Yeah. You know, you got a hundred baggers, and you know, one to a hundred, and kind of those types of things. You know, where's the short book? Uh, that's out there with all the successes kind of two to one. And that's the, that's also the beauty of this. When you think about it for Chris at, you know, you know it's, you're starting at one, you got, you know, it goes up a hundred times, right? Um, you make a lot of money exponentially. The economics are in your favor. You short a company, you know, it goes to zero fine. There's a finite amount of money that you can make in that situation. And so the odds are just in your favor also for optimism. I think you should take advantage of that if you're if you're able to. Yeah, I mean, uh, real quick, Andy, did you, did you want to? Uh, I mean, you're kind of our our SaaS tech guy here, you know. I mean, what what do you think about this? Um, yeah, I think yeah, you have to be an optimist to have the long term returns and and to get the power of compounding in your favor. And um, but what I'm interested in is kind of, is there a way to accelerate the hunter bagger? Because, uh, you know, there's two <laughs> factors that I'm doing more private investing. So there's two factors that I'm looking at, I'm thinking about a lot that can accelerate potential for a hunter bagger. One is to invest in tiny companies. You know, I know your book talks about 50 million market cap and over, but if you can find a company that goes from 2 million to 200 million, um, and be that, you know, first check in, that's a hundred bagger. Um, so there's something about a small, that I know there's more risk, 90% of startups fail, but 
there's something about if you can if you can some investing things a tiny tiny size it might increase your likelihood for a hunter beggar and then the other thing i've been thinking about is is leverage so i know you i know leverage can work both ways i mean you want a strong balance sheet but the private equity guys can get a huge boost in the returns by using leverage so um just you know one example let's, let's say a company has one third equity two thirds debt you know, so they pay off the debt, they basically have a three, they basically triple their money. So that's a three. And then let's say they buy in at three times cash flow, but they take a public and it's now 15 times cash flow. So that's a five X. So you went three times five, you now got a 15 X. And let's say that cash flow grows seven X over um, 10 years. So three times five times seven, you have 105 bagger. So there's, you know, leverage can also help you. <laughs> Yeah. If, if you have a, a business with stable cash flow, they're growing cash flow. Yeah, I so, mean, I, I've I been there a lot. With this. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of ways to skin a cat. So, I mean, I, yeah. I, there's more paths up the mountain than, than just the one that I, you know, kind of emphasize in the book because it suits my personal taste. But the right. other thing you mentioned about leverage, which I think is interesting, um, you know, there's other kinds of leverage other than purely financial leverage. So there are some right. business models that have beautiful leverage, but they're organically part of the business either because they have, they're able to use suppliers' capital to fund their businesses, and so things like that. I, I, uh, I'm sure you could come up with an interesting example for a reason. I'm drawing a blank right now, but there are businesses that have a kind of a float, obviously insurance, but something other than insurance. I'm thinking of operating companies that actually have negative working capital and have basically their suppliers fund their growth. And that's why there's there's a great opportunity, I think, when you're first finding a company in the early days of this to have strong balance sheet, low or no debt because then they have the opportunity as their operations become more predictable to add on some leverage in a safe way. So it's not risky when you're buying in and they can remain kind of low risk along the way as they're growing. And you know, if you, if you get into one of these companies early on, it already is kind of heavily indebted and yeah, it's levered in that way uh, where, you know, both the risk and return, but it, you know, of course it has the opportunity for bankruptcy as well. And so, you know, ultimately you want to find these hundred baggers like in more Chris's examples where they're the low risk of permanent capital loss. Uh, and, you know, so, so that strong balance sheet keeps that risk low, but it also does create a, or demonstrates and, and gives opportunity for uh, tremendous operational advantages in the future and access uh, to safe leverage in the future that can really help juice those. And I think that's why you kind of get these situations, right, with these, these great companies. All right, guys. Oh, sorry, Gary. No, no, no I, I, I would echo those comments. And I just think, uh, you know, thinking about just the financial characteristics of the business itself. I mean, we recently invested uh, in a company that had, you know, it's got almost $2 billion in sales, but only ever raised $50 million from outside investors in, in before they went before they became public. And like, you think about that sort of the cash conversion cycle and, and all that other stuff. Uh, you know, I almost think that that's, um, that's an important feature of one of these things to be able to sort of self fund the, the growth runway as they sort of eat the TAM. Uh, that's, that's, that's my only, my only comment on the matter. All right, guys. Well, I think, I think we're about rounding the bend here. So, I mean, I, I, I really appreciate everyone's, uh, joining in and, and your, all your thoughts on future hundred plus baggers and how to, uh, how to identify them. So I think a good way to close this out is uh, to that question, let's have a little bit of fun. 
You know, what do you think your routine will look like? You know, let's, let's not say 2025, let's go 2030. Let's go 10 years out. You know, um, how things you think might change and or not change to Gary's point. So let's do, uh, let's do that. Uh, let's go, let's go clockwise this time. So Andy, what do you think? Well, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm putting you on the spot I'm, at all. I'm, yeah, I'm glad I'm not first. Yeah, I'm yeah. glad I'm not first on that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm just I'm studying these, trying to study extreme success, and I, you know, have my, I cultivate this list of thousand bag bagger case studies, and the seven recent ones, two were consumer products, Expel and Monster, and five are uh, software with that operating leverage, you know, as they scale. So, you know, if I'm looking out ten years from now. I still feel like there's going to be some new consumer product companies, perhaps just starting today, that have that have become 10 hundred baggers. Um, I, I think, as I mentioned before, I think there's there's demand side um, moats you can build that you couldn't build in the past. That basically a startup can almost you know build a, a brand. <laughs> so um, I think there's going to be some hundred baggers in the consumer product uh, category, and I think there's going to be more hundred baggers in the software. And as we talked before about the international investing, what's also fascinating is that a lot of these um, startups are they're taking US ideas in software and they're taking them to Latin America, Mexico, India, and a lot of those will be hundred baggers. So they're just being replicating what was successful in the US and other countries in software. So that's kind of fascinating to me. So I'm I'm quite like focused on consumer products and software. I just, you know, I think there's going to be some opportunities there. And uh, that's, that's, I'm kind of got tunnel vision on that. So. Nice. All right, Gary, what about you? What do you think? I, I tend to think that a lot of the trends that we see are going to sort of remain in force and sort of keep going. So, um, you know, what are we going to see in 2025, 2030? Uh, you know, I think, the, you know, these trends to more digital stuff, more digital consumption, uh, you know, those are going to be in, definitely in place. Um, what's not, you know, what, what's not going to change? I mean, people, by and large, people don't change as much as they think. So um, to the point about some of these brands, sure. Um, you know, it seems to me that some of these startup brands, their, their, their whole goal is to be sold to one of these bigger CPG companies. Like that's the best version of it. I don't know. I guess uh, you know, one or two of them have not done that and they've become real standalones, but still it's, it's these things that, you know, things that are already in motion, I think are just going to sort of continue to be in motion in terms of, you know, uh, the disruption that's going to happen. There's going to be disruption that happens and, you know, it's, uh, you just got to be sort of always on the lookout for what it is and, and, you know, how it impacts the things that you're involved with and, I'd much rather be in bed with the disruptor than the disrupted. And so that's it for me. All right, Steven. Yeah, well, I try to live by that quote. It's uh, he who lives by the crystal ball soon learns to eat ground glass. Yeah. So I'm afraid to even, you know, make any predictions uh, here one way or the other. But, you know, I'll <laughs> say I, I think our strategy, fundamental bottom up, uh, value oriented, whatever that definition is at the time, will uh, you know, this is this is like a law, right? I think it's an investing type of law. It goes at various times. It seems like it's not 
it's not in favor of certain times, but uh, ultimately it comes back to the law in the same way that, uh, you know, the Declaration of Independence cannot be improved upon. It, it just is. It's the end game. And, and that's the foundation for applying that for the rest of kind of society and the world in, in, a, in a positive way. And I, I think that our style of investing is similar to that. And so, you know, it'll be there. It'll always be relevant. There'll always be companies that we can do well and take advantage on, uh, whether they're hundred baggers or just, you know, little lowly two or three baggers, which I'm happy with as well. And, you know, they'll be there in 10 years and 15 years. And I think our challenge is to stay disciplined to our approach during these periods uh, of out of when they're out of favor. Uh, you know, so I, I'd say that on an optimistic note for, for those of us who, who take that approach and, and have had, uh, you know, successes and failures or you know, uncertainty or just this, this kind of volatility that uh, that's what weeds people out. When you have survivorship bias, it's those funds that today, you know, are gone because they can't handle that or they can't stay disciplined. And 20 years from now, when we look back, those funds and those fund managers that we look back as, as being very successful are those who persevered. Because to, to Andy's point, you know, all these, all these famous uh, well-known fund managers and people like Buffett and others had those same periods and, and sometimes longer than what we've experienced so far. Well, I, I agree with uh, what Stephen says for sure. Um, I think when, I, when you think about making a long-term prediction like the 2030, everybody, you, know, you want to extrapolate and there's always a surprise that makes it you know, somewhere along the line, there's a 9-11 or there's a pandemic and the changes everything afterwards. And so, well, definitely, not definitely, but I mean, my prediction will be something like that. There'll be some kind of surprise in the next decade that will be a little quake in the, in the line there will change everything afterwards. And I, I do think we'll probably have further health scares like this pandemic. I was reading a book that is kind of saying how increasingly there's chances these viruses making jumps from humans, uh, from animals to humans for a variety of reasons. But so, but we'll adjust. I mean, it's just like, you know, when 9-11 happened, now we go to airport security and we don't think anything about it. It's just something we do. And there's all kinds of precautions that have been in place since then that we've had to live with. And uh, so the pandemic, I think there'll be a lot of things that are in place now will, con will still continue even 10 years out. But what that big surprise will be, I don't know. But I'm optimistic that people will adjust and business will adjust and the kinds of things we like will, st will still be around. I think that's a great way to end it. So um, thank you all for doing this. Let, let's everybody give uh, where everybody can find more information about you and, and maybe follow you on social. So let's let's go right back to you, Chris, and then we'll go back around. So, yeah, Chris, well, uh, I mean, I'm on Twitter. So it's uh, at Chris W. Mayer, M-A-Y-E-R. And uh, you could also Google Woodlock House. I, I write an occasional blog and you can keep up with what I'm doing there too. Very cool. Steven? Uh, great. Take a look at my fund, Arquitos Capital. It's arquitos.com, A-R-Q-U-I-T-O-S. Uh, also, willowoakfunds.com, where it's a company we control that offers operational services for emerging managers. And then I'm on Twitter as well at Stephen underscore Keel, K-I-E-L. All right, Gary? Yeah, I, uh, my partner Eric and I have a podcast on, on your network called In the Market Trenches. To, you, know, you guys want to come on? That'd be Cool to have you. We could talk about some other stuff. We had Steven on. We had a fun conversation uh, at NOL shells and happy to talk about, <laughs> uh, you know, any of your investing stories if you'd like to share them. Uh, and then I have an RIA uh, called Accretive Wealth Partners and we have a website, AccretiveWealthPartners.com. We also have LinkedIn and uh, all that sort of stuff. 
We have a blog there too. Occasionally I write something. <laughs> Very good. And Andy? Pretty active on LinkedIn and limited activity on Twitter, but you can find me both places. My name, Andy Prykeshat. Very good. All right. Well, again, my name is Robert Kraft. And, uh, you know, look, uh, as Steven said earlier, of course, I'm a huge fan of Brad Pitt. I'm his Jewish doppelganger. So I always, <laughs> so I always got to see how my brother from another mother is doing in, in nice a hair. In movie. Yeah, nice you hair. know, it's the, it's the hair, right? You know, but uh, yeah, look, guys, I really do appreciate it. I, 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 this was a lot of fun. Again, you can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. Uh, Check us out. Go subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash SNNWire. And actually, the Investors Roundtable will soon have its own podcast stream. So definitely look out for that. Uh, next week, we're taking a little week off. You know, uh, we got to all enjoy our Labor Day week. And uh, yeah, hope you all enjoy. Everybody have a great Labor Day weekend. And uh, thank you. Talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Bobby.